Would you please turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning? It's actually quite relaxed sitting. Uh, I don't usually sit when I, when I teach, but it sure feels a lot better on the knees. So I'm not doing this to start a new trend or to be cool, though I am cool. Uh, I'm just resting my knee. <clears throat> There's a brace on it as well. Uh, so if you want me to bring a doctor's note, I can do that. Pardon me? You're not a wise man. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today and for the word of God, which reveals to us the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand what the Spirit would say to us as a church and to each and every one of us as your followers. If there are some here today that have not committed their life fully, Lord, to your lordship and to receive, uh, to, to uh, receiving, Lord, you, then we pray that today would be a, a banner day for them. And so we just ask today for the grace of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God to flood our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we looked at Peter's, and we are looking at Peter's uh, recorded very first sermon uh, that started in uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, just to kind of quickly review before we talk uh, a little more today, the first thing it is is that he, we, we see that he stood up and he preached the word to them. And preaching is a biblical and indispensable part of church ministry. And the Bible tells us that he stood with the 11 with confidence and with courage. And, of course, that came because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, that uh, the Lord Jesus told the disciples uh, that would come upon them as they tarried or waited in Jerusalem. And uh, Peter spoke to them the word of God, the counsel and the wisdom of God's plan for their lives. And uh, we know that the entire book of Acts follows this same pattern. They went everywhere preaching the gospel, declaring the word of God, telling people that Jesus Christ was the risen Savior and that they were to turn from sin, repent, and receive Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's, that's the pattern of the early church. And we looked at Peter's message, we read it last week, and this is what marked Peter's first message. First of all, it was simple. He told them what wasn't happening, and that was that they weren't drunk, as some had supposed. Then he told them what it was, that this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then he told them about the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and that they needed to make a decision. Uh, secondly, it was scriptural. Peter, three times in his first sermon, 
from memory, quotes from the Old Testament. He quoted from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and he quoted from the Psalms twice. And Peter quoted the word of God because he wanted to give authority and credibility to his listeners that he was not making this stuff up, that it was based on something more than just something that was coming into his head, but it was based upon the authority of the scriptures, God's word, all preaching should be based upon the authority of God's word, the scriptures. Amen? The second thing is, is that it was Christ-centered. Christ is the grand subject of all preaching, of all biblical exposition, and all proclamation. It is a Christ-centered ministry. And all preaching always points to him. And it is dependent upon him to make sense and to give meaning to the proclamation of the message that the pastor or the preacher is giving. And four times in Peter's message, he brings his sermon to the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, it was convicting. After he had finished preaching, it says that the people were cut to the heart and asked what they should do after Peter spoke to them. What an amazing response. That they heard Peter preaching under the authority of the Holy Spirit. He preaches the word of God, and it says that they were cut to the heart. Here's what it doesn't say. They did not comment on Peter's clothes, his hairstyle. They didn't talk about his worship team. They didn't have any building to look at. They didn't comment on his great humor. Rather, all they said is, is that they were cut to the heart, and what should we do? And then lastly, there was a practical application. And all Christ-centered powerful and convincing messages are given to us because there is always an application at the end of what you have just proclaimed. Somebody in Bible college said, when you're preaching, Dale, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Okay. Now, here's Peter. He is an uneducated man, a fisherman by trade who is now filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and he stands up boldly to preach his first sermon, and God confirms uh, in this man the incredible simplicity of what is to be in the proclamation from the pulpit. And that is a man that's filled with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit of God, and that it is Christ-centered, and then God brings the fruit. God brings the fruit. So today, we're going to continue because we want to finish off the second chapter, and we want to read about the first church's foundations and their priorities. So if you have your Bibles open, and I pray that you do. I know that we have the scriptures up behind me, but I'm always encouraged when people have their Bibles, bring them by their Bibles, and follow along in their Bibles. So let's turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 2, and let's pick it up in verse 36. Now here is 
Peter, he's finishing off his message, and this is what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's quite a message. Here Peter is in the holy city of Jerusalem. And we know that, that there were at least three events that the Jews were required in the law to come and present themselves in Jerusalem, and Pentecost was one of them. So Jerusalem is filled with devout religious Jews from everywhere. They were in Jerusalem celebrating what God had told them to do in the scriptures. You can't get more religious than that. We're in the holy city. We are celebrating and presenting ourselves to, to God as God told us to do in the Bible, in the scriptures. The house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now, if I was on Peter's management team, I'd go like, seriously, Peter, you want to influence these God-fearing, devout Jews, and you're going off and making statements like that? You want them to take you seriously, and you just kind of get up in their grill and throw down on them like you just crucified your Messiah? a mere 50 days ago? How in the world do you expect to get a following preaching like that? And more than that, how could he expect these Jews to turn their backs publicly on their religion and their culture? How could he ask them to risk becoming outcasts among their families and their societies? And trust me, when a good Old Testament believing Jew as their Lord and their Messiah, they were immediately outcasts. They were shunned. How could he demand that they accept his Messiah, the very one that the leaders had rejected and executed? We would no doubt predict that the results of Peter's sermon and evangelism strategy needed to be reworked at best. I have a question for you this morning, and as you've probably deduced, this is not a Mother's Day sermon. But I have a question for you this morning. I want to ask you this morning, should coming to faith in Christ be hard or easy? Perhaps the question should be more simply put is, if what you're hearing is true, then what will you do about it, whether it's hard or whether it's easy? Now, in one sense, coming to faith in Christ is easy. Why do I say that? Because to come to faith in Christ, you and I are not asked to perform great feats. We are not 
not feats, feats, F-E-A-T-S. We are not asked to accomplish wondrous works, nor do you have to be accredited with performing miracles to qualify. You don't need money to buy it or fame to acquire it. You don't need to be a certain skin color. You don't need to live in a certain place in the world. And you don't have to have certain benefits to qualify. Everything to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior has been done. There is nothing left undone. And there is nothing left to be done except to believe and to receive the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that easy. In an essence, the gospel is come as you are, and God receives you just as you are. Now, how simple is that? Anybody can do it. Everything that needs to be done has been done There is nothing that you and I can do to add to what Christ has done. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, as the Thompson kids always tell me. How easy can that be that God does everything that we can't do and all that we have to do is appropriated by faith, by believing on his mercy and grace. Yet, As we read the scriptures, the gospel is hard. Now, I could give you example after example after example, but I've just picked a couple for you today. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Lord Jesus says that there are few who find the narrow gate and enter in, but the broad way and the big gate There are many who will go in and will not find it. The narrow gate is also called the narrow door. It is referred to by the Lord Jesus here in Matthew 23 and 24. And here Jesus compares the narrow gate to the broad road which leads to destruction or hell. And he says that there are many that are on that road, but there are few that are on the narrow road. By contrast, Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And there's only a few that find it. What exactly is Jesus saying here about the many and the few? He is saying that even though the gospel is so easy to believe, there are few that will do it. First of all, we need to understand that Jesus is the door which all must enter if you want to go into eternal life. There is no other way because Jesus himself said that he is the way 
and he is the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. The way to eternal life, according to the Lord Jesus, is restricted to just one way, the narrow way, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this sense, the way is narrow because it's the only way, and relatively speaking, few people will enter into it. Many will seek an alternative route to God. Maybe you're one of them this morning. They'll try to get there through man-made rules and regulations, false religions, self-effort. And there are many who follow this broad road that leads to eternal destruction. But in John 10, Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me and they will enter into my rest. Entering the narrow gate is still difficult difficult because of the opposition of our human pride, our natural love of sin, and the opposition of Satan that has the world in his control, of which all of us battle against for as long as we're going to be walking on the face of this earth. The exhortation to strive to enter is a command to repent and enter the gate, not just to stand and look at it and admire it or to even think about it or to talk about it or to complain about it or to say, oh, it's too small, it's too difficult, it's unjustly narrow. Jesus just said, enter it. We are not to ask why others are not entering we are not to make excuses why we shouldn't be entering or why others aren't entering. Jesus just said, there is the gate, enter into it. We're not even to be concerned, as it were, of who is not entering, but we are to take responsibility of whether we will enter. And we are to strive to enter it. We are not to kind of take it lackadaisical. Strive to enter the narrow gate. But others to strive to enter as well. And in that way, the gospel is hard. Because so many people want to enter by a different way. They want to profess Christ, but they don't want to possess Christ. They want to talk the talk, but they don't want to walk the walk. They want to be able to create another righteousness by which to enter in to the narrow gate. And there is only one righteousness by which we can enter, and it's by the righteousness of Christ. Most of you who are followers of Jesus and have committed your life to Christ have had conversations about Christ with other people through your lifetime and hopefully even today you're in different places and having different conversations and people will go as far as to entertain Jesus as being a door but not the door. And then they will talk about the doors of 
my own righteousness and good works. Doesn't that door qualify me to enter into his presence? Doesn't my own works and my own goodness qualify for me to come in through that narrow gate? And you see, that's where it's hard. Because Jesus says that's the broad way. And no one is going to enter. Jesus basically said it's the the way that leads to destruction. And there are a lot of people that are on it. I want to just share one more story out of the Bible. And it's out of Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And it's the rich young ruler. Now behold, verse 16, chapter 19 of Matthew. Now behold, one came and said to him, good teacher... What good thing, get this, shall I do that I may have eternal life? What a question. Hey, Lord, what do I have to do to have eternal life? So here's what Jesus said to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life... Keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. By the way, I have committed all of those in my heart. Jesus told us that if you commit those things in your heart, you're as good as done it. So I know that I can't enter into eternal life by keeping the commands because I've broken them all. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, assuredly, I say to you that it's hard, not easy, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, when the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. It's impossible to save yourself. If you ask most people what you have to do to get into heaven, assuming they believe in heaven, and I found most people that believe in heaven somehow don't believe in hell. I don't know how they get there, but they seem, you know, one exists, but the other doesn't. And the overwhelming response will be some form of being a good person. Most, if not all, religions and worldly philosophies are ethically based. Whether it's Islam, Judaism, secular humanism, or any other ism, the teaching that is common among them all is getting to heaven is a matter of being a good person. 
follow the Ten Commandments or the precepts of the Koran or the Golden Rule. But is this what the Bible teaches? Is this what Christ teaches? If Christianity is just one of the many world religions that teach that being a good person will get us into heaven, then there's no need for Jesus to die. The first thing we note in this story is that the rich young ruler is asking a good question. What good deeds must I do to have eternal life? In asking this question, he acknowledges the fact that despite all of his efforts to be a good person thus far, he feels something is lacking and he wants to know what else must be done to obtain eternal life. And however... He's asking this question from the wrong worldview, and that is the worldview of merit. What must I do to merit this? And he's failed to grasp the true meaning of the laws, Jesus will point out to him, which was to serve the law, which was to serve as a tutor to bring us to Christ. The second thing is to note Jesus' response to his question. Jesus asks a question in return. Why is he even inquiring to what is good? Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, namely that no one is good and no one does good except God. The young man is operating under a false premise that a good person is able to earn his way to heaven. What else must I do? And to make his point, Jesus says that if, a young, if this young man wants eternal life, he should keep all the commands. Now, in saying this, Jesus is not advocating works-based righteousness. Rather, Jesus is challenging the young man's suppositions by showing this young man's shallow understanding of the law and his human ability. Because the young man's response is telling us. When he is told to keep the commands, he asks Jesus, which ones? And Jesus continues to gently show the man the error of his ways by giving him the second uh, command of the law, or the second table, table of the law, the commandments that deal with our relationships to other people. You can almost sense the frustration in this young man's response when he tells Jesus he's kept all of these since his youth, and he insists he's a good person. The young man's response is rather ironic. In saying he has kept all those commandments since his youth, he has broken the commandment regarding false witness. And if he were truly being honest, he would have said that as hard as he has been trying to keep the commandments, he couldn't do it. He's not been totally a good person. He has a shallow understanding of the law and an inflated opinion of his own ability. Also, he has a feeling that he is not good enough and so he's asking Jesus, what do I still act and, uh, lack? And here's where Jesus basically cuts to the core of the argument. He confronts the young man's self-righteousness, and he tells him if he wishes to be perfect, a truly good person, he must sell all that he has and come follow him. And in that statement, Jesus has perfectly diagnosed the man's lack, which is his love for wealth. The, great, the man's great wealth has become an idol in his life. 
And if he has claimed to keep all the commandments, but in reality he couldn't even keep this first one, which was to have no other gods before him. The young man turns his back on Jesus and walks the broad road because it was too hard. You see, his God was his wealth, and he chose it over Jesus. And in that way, the gospel is hard. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and he teaches them a principle, and he says, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Does it sound easy to you for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It sounds pretty hard. I don't think there would be much left of the old camel once he got through it. It'd just be bloods and guts and intestines all over the place. Shocking to his disciples that it would be that hard for a man to be saved. Because they thought that riches were a sign of blessing, and they said, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? And Jesus reminded the disciples that salvation is of God. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Well, who can be saved? Well, if it's left up to you and I, no one. If being a good person is not enough to get you into heaven because no one is good, then there's only one who is good. And that is God himself. And the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and we come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But fortunately, God didn't wait until someone somewhere became good enough to earn their way into heaven, he sent Christ Jesus to die for the unrighteous. And that's how easy it is, which is to believe on Christ. You see, the gospel, my friends, is not about going to a destination, even though that's part of the package. The gospel is about a person. The place will take care of itself, but it's about the person, the person of Jesus Christ. And that is what Peter is preaching to the Jews. He is saying to these Jewish believers, these Jewish devout religious Jewish people, you crucified your Messiah, whom God has raised up to be Lord. You crucified him. What a message. Well, the message of the gospel is that we have crucified Jesus Christ. Our sin has put him upon the cross. And Peter's message is that if you will believe why God put him on that cross and receive the reason why, which is to die for your sin and to take it away, you will be saved. Because Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. 
And that's what Peter was preaching to these good. He said to them, Therefore let all the house of Israel know it surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And this is what Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I'm going to stop there this morning. Brethren and sisters, youngins and oldens, listen to me this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is easy and it's hard. For if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus said you could not be a disciple of his unless what? You lay down your life and you take up your cross and you follow him. I was golfing with a guy the other week. He's not a believer. And he said to me something that was quite funny to me. He goes, you know, Dale, I was at this other church, and I'm not going to name it because it was a rebuke to that church. He said, you know, I kind of like that church. And I go, why? He says, you know, they, they sang really snappy songs, and it was kind of a really happy place to be. He said, and you know, the pastor there, he... He didn't strike me as an overly spiritual guy. I'm sure he'd be thrilled to hear that. And then he said, you know, Dale, at your church, do you, do you, do you sing snappy, happy songs? Because I like to be happy. I want to come into a church and I want to, you know, I want to be happy for an hour. And I'm just thinking, the early disciples... I started thinking of this song. Gather again, just praising the Lord. We're together again in one accord. Something good's about to happen. Something good is in store. We're together again, just praising the Lord. I was thinking the early disciples is we're together again. And they're about to kick down the door. We're together again, thrown in jail in one accord. Because that was their story. What I'm trying to say to you is there is great joy in the Lord. But the joy comes from making Christ Jesus Lord. Not from seeking what God can give you. Though God can give you a lot. I don't regret one day of being saved. But I would be lying to you if it was easy and happy and joyful, though 
I would say that through all of the times, I realized that God was after something much deeper in my life than just happiness, though I like happiness. <laughs> he wanted my heart. And he allowed a lot of stuff to come into my life, and he continues to bring me to the realization that this world is a fool's dream. There's nothing in it. It's going to pass away. And only he who does the will of the Father is going to abide forever. And so this morning, I am asking you, not whether you are a professor of spiritual truth, but whether you are a possessor of spiritual life that you've come to realize that repentance and believing is being cut to the heart and realizing that my sin and your sin put Jesus upon the cross because we are hopeless and dead sinners and we need to be saved. And it's not a matter of going through the motions and showing up in church. Anybody can do that. But a safe person is one that has believed the message and received Christ and repented and turned away from sin and onto Christ. Well, that's my Mother's Day message. Can't you wait? For, I bet you just can't wait for Father's Day. I want you to pray with me today. Worship team, you can come up and join me. As I get older, and please, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you should bow your head and close your eyes and fall asleep. Well, Dale talks now. But if you would just take a moment to humbly reflect. I have come to the place in my life that I love the Lord and I love you. And I am not going to stand up here and soft pedal a message that's not true to you. I'm done with that. I'm here to preach Christ crucified. And that he has rose from the dead and he has ascended and he's coming back a second day. And the good news is repent and believe the gospel. Have you done that this morning? Not, re not, not repent and come to church. Not put in time, but to make Christ Lord of your life. So Lord Jesus, this morning, I, I really believe that no one here because of an accident. I believe, Lord, that it was your plan and your purpose to bring each and every person here to hear the wonderful news of the gospel of how easy it is to enter in to the narrow door to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of your sin to receive the free gift of salvation are you hanging on to your own self-righteousness are you looking for the broad way and the broad door there's many, many, many who are on it. That's what Jesus said. 
I'm asking you to get off it today and to enter in through the narrow door, Christ Jesus. And it's not the prayer that saves you. It's what you are believing in your heart right now. But if you are believing in this in, in your heart, then pray this prayer, Lord Jesus. You were the one that was crucified for my sin. It was you that were laid in the grave for my sin. It is you that rose victoriously on the third day with victory over my sin. It is you that ascended to the right hand of the Father. It is you that sent the Holy Spirit. It is you that said that I can be born again when I repent and that you will give me the blessed Holy Spirit to dwell in me. It is you that has given me the word of grass and to live. Today, Lord, I surrender all of my doubts, all of my fears, everything that I don't know, everything that I do know, everything that has disappointed me, everything that has made me angry, everything that has bewildered me, everything that is beyond my pay grade, I bow at your feet and say, you are my Lord. And there will be no other. You alone are the door which I will enter through. And if you've never received any time Christ Jesus as your Savior, He loves you. He loves you. And He has invited you into a relationship and He asks you to receive Him. And you can just simply say, Jesus, I receive you today as my Lord and my Savior. And I repent and turn away. Wash me clean. Send your spirit to dwell within me and help me by your grace to walk the rest of my life one day at a time, one step at a time to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.